Would you believe it? It's been almost a week since we had the general election in the UK on Thursday, the 12th of December 2019. One week since, in the words of Boris Johnson, our old new Prime Minister, he smashed the roadblock. And, to add to that, he also got a stonking mandate on Brexit. That is quite true. That red wall of Labour seats in the north, they've gone, they've been removed, they've been hacked. And, whether we like it or not, get Brexit done. That slogan, that mantra that was repeated day in, day out, hour in, hour out, has proved to be quite effective. And here we are today with a House of Commons that is completely different from its predecessor one, and the Conservative Party enjoys a comfortable majority of some 80 seats. So there we are. The future, at least the immediate future, is quite clear, I think. Get Brexit done, what does it mean? It means out of the EU by the 31st of January, and then, hopefully, until the end of 2020, we managed to get a trade agreement, or perhaps in the plural, trade agreements with the 27 member states of the EU. And in that way, the whole structure of what we've known over the past 40-odd years will have changed. So, if that is the case, what does Boris Johnson have in mind? Well, I cannot claim that I can read the Prime Minister's mind, but let me try in this unscripted podcast, what I call intuitive reactions, let me try and sort of mull a little bit over what happened on Thursday the 12th of December and why it happened. Some people already know what I'm going to say, but there are others be they in the United Kingdom or across Europe, who might be interested in a couple of the thoughts that I might include in the next 15 minutes or so. To answer that first question, I would like to go back to 1973, when under Prime Minister Edward Heath, the United Kingdom joined the European Economic Community. It was known as the EEC then. And the whole idea was basically economic integration. Harold Wilson was not too clear on that, so he managed to organize a referendum in 1975, and the country, our country, voted to be in the EEC. Now, that was for economic integration, something that most Brits, as an island, welcomed at the time and could understand. But by 1993, that economic integration turned, in my opinion, into a political one with the Treaty of Maastricht. And whilst many European continental neighbors of ours love the idea of enhanced political integration uh, amongst European countries, I do not think 
that is something that many, many Brits in this country aspire for. And I think that was the beginning of where we are today with Brexit. So the focus was on economics, but when that focus turned into politics, I think that the stumbling blocks were already being uh, planted ahead of us. So if anybody read the Conservative Party manifesto for this recent election, I'm sure you will have noticed that there was a reference to free ports. Now, I'm not an economist and I cannot claim to make economic sense of us dropping out of the EU. However, if I were to push that argument a little bit forward in layman terms, I would remind myself and listeners that in Margaret Thatcher's times, we also had economic zones. After all, here in London, you have the Canary Wharf and you have the Isle of Dogs. Now they are full of skyscrapers and a lot of business happening in that part of London. I think that free ports are today's version of economic zones, providing opportunities, according to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, for the whole country to pull up its socks, leave the, I don't know what to call it really, leave the association with the EU that in some minds hampers our growth and move forward. So I've heard a lot about doing this, particularly in the north, because of the way that many, many Labour supporters in the north actually voted for the Tories and got the Conservative Party this uh, majority. So, for instance, in the northeast, in places like, uh, I don't know, Billingham, like Redcar, like even Thornaby, I can see things moving forward. And this moving forward, this momentum, mind you, is going to be a gain for some, but also a loss for others. So, the jury is out, to put on my lawyer's hat and talk in those terms. But if the spoils went to the victor, and that victor is Boris Johnson, who is the loser? Well, the loser is, of course, Jeremy Corbyn. And I kind of feel a bit sorry for the guy who's been really, really savaged by the results of this election. Now, I know there are loads of people in this country, some MPs within the Labour Party, who cannot stand the sight of him and who think that he was on his own responsible for the catastrophe that befell the Labour Party, the worst for many, many decades. Now, I'm not going to sit here and sort of argue whether that's true or not. To be honest with you, I don't know if it is or not, and I'm not sure that many people are too interested at this stage to sit and split hair as to how much responsibility he holds for this disaster and how much others do. However, I would like, nonetheless, to basically highlight three flaws in the Labour Party approach to these elections. Call it Corbyn's approach. 
The first, of course, the obvious one, the patent one, was Brexit. Now, the way I see it, with the Brexit party of Nigel Farage and UKIP pretty much disappearing, vanishing, dissolving, all leavers had one address for their votes, and that address was the Conservative Party. So if we look at the referendum and we split the country into two halves, then one half of the country will have voted for the Conservatives, between inverted commas, in order to get Brexit done. But the other half was spoiled for choice, and that wasn't particularly a good thing, because those Remainers who didn't want to leave and who didn't want to entrust uh, Boris Johnson with the Prime Minister's office they had Labour, they had the Lib Dems, they had the Greens. In Scotland, they had SNP. In Northern Ireland, they had uh, Sinn Féin and the SDLP. So the votes for Remainers fragmented. And Jeremy Corbyn did a big fudge. Faced being in the horns of a dilemma, he did what I think was a grave mistake. He decided to fudge it, to stay in the middle and say, well, whether you're a Remainer or a Lever, vote for us, and then we'll have another referendum, and then once you vote on that new deal we as Labour will bring back from Brussels, we will then proceed with whatever the people decide. Well, that doesn't work. It's a mouthful, and it's a complicated formula, and people just didn't go for it. And therefore, people basically switched off when Labour was talking about uh, Brexit. The second thing which I think was also very wrong with Labour is its manifesto. Now, okay, it's Christmas time and Santa Claus has a big red bag, but come on, so much on offer from dental treatment, to internet, to uh, pensions, to anything you want to talk about, and Labour was going to throw money at it. And that sort of put in people's minds the idea that Labour had once again lost its sense of fiscal responsibility. And that doesn't go down well with a lot of people today, particularly since the a lot of these people are now more moneyed and they are worried about suddenly finding themselves in huge, huge debt. And the third and final uh, flaw for Labour, admittedly, was the person of Jeremy Corbyn himself. He might be a very interesting, a very decent man, but we're talking interests here, we're not talking decency. And I think he just was not able to galvanize the people. He didn't manage him and the movement that followed him. They did not manage to galvanize the people in the north and elsewhere to vote for Labour. Hence, we have at the moment uh, the reality of Labour being in dire straits. And I also think that... Labour and Jeremy Corbyn were a bit naive. The establishment in this country is very powerful, as it is in many other countries. 
And I do believe that there is an element of the establishment throwing the kitchen sink at him when they realize that he's the one who's trying to get the keys to 10 Downing Street. So whichever way you look at it, whichever way you uh, calculate it, you realize that Jeremy Corbyn was not it. Then, of course, there are the other parties. Now, I don't need to talk to you much about them because the Lib Dems, like uh, Labour, committed many, many errors. And Joe Swinson, the leader at the time, paid the price for that because she also lost her own uh, seat in Scotland. What, in my opinion, was the most tactical error for Joe Swinson was not that she pretended she's going to become prime minister. Come on, in a system that promotes first past the poll, you know that you're not going to uh, do that. But when she said revoke Article 50, you don't do that because that freaks people out. That sort of makes people think, wow, we've got another God knows how long before uh, we can get to some quieter shores. But it also messes up with people's understanding of, okay, you're going to revoke Article 50, then you're going to upset the other 50% of the country, and that's going to be another polarized situation on our hands. She played that wrong, and she paid the price for it. The Greens didn't do famously well. They started with one seat and ended with one seat, but there is no doubt in my mind that apart from Northern Ireland, where Sinn Féin and SDLP, Remainers uh, together, have more seats now than the DUP, that is strong, but apart from that, the real opposition now is in Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP managed to do brilliantly well by combining, and I thought at some stage that she was actually being a bit too hasty, but she seems to have pulled it off, I think, where they combined, where she combined anti-Brexit with independence. So perhaps, perhaps we've got uh, a new uh, opposition now uh, north of the border against the Conservatives rather than the traditional one with Labour. So this is where we are at the moment. This is how I see things. Is it going to be a question of uh, short-term gain, long-term loss, short-term loss, long-term gain? I don't know how things are going to pan out. It's too early yet to, to make my mind up. I need to see how far is Boris Johnson going to go. Is he really going to legislate, as I think he actually will, is he going to legislate that it will be unlawful if the trade agreement negotiations went beyond December 2020? Because if he's going to do that, and I have every belief that he might well do it, then what that means is that, okay, it ramps up the pressure on both the UK and the EU to come up with an agreement in 11 short months. But if that doesn't happen, the result would be that we will simply drop out, fall off the cliff edge, tumble out, uh, go out without a deal. And that, to me, somebody who has very, very strong Eurocentric uh, affiliations 
I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed by it. I say it as it is. I respect everybody, but this is me. I would think that if we go out without a deal, that is going to be an even worse time uh, for us here in this country and for all the businesses who depend so much on European uh, presence and European men and women helping. So I, at the moment, bide my time and we will see how things work out in the future. But the fact remains that the two most important items to come out of this election in terms of agenda were Brexit and the NHS. Now, Brexit is Boris Johnson's territory. I think he's going to romp forward. And I have my misgivings, but I will keep mum at the moment. And the other one is the NHS. And let us see what will be the direction of travel uh, in that one. For me, the focus is not somebody of my generation. It's not people in their late 40s even, but certainly in their 50s and 60s, who should be worried about the direction of travel. It is the much younger generations. And as YouGov poll showed recently, that the, a much stronger number of young people voted for Labour. These are the people of the future. These are the people who will make the future of the UK and Europe. So I just hope for their sake and for everybody else that what we do in the next, what is it, four, five years will not be detrimental to the interests of the UK, but that it will also not be detrimental to the interests of the EU because we are living in a broader globalized world and we cannot afford to think that we do not need our neighbors and our largest market just down the road from us. But maybe, I don't know, I'm throwing this out, maybe what Bill Clinton purportedly said that be strong and wrong, he said, not weak and right. Is this the new motto of our populist era? I don't really know. I'll just keep my fingers crossed and I'll conclude with a personal thought and that is almost a native ethnocentric thought. You see, I'm Armenian. Some of you know that. Some of you tell me that I keep coming back to that point. And as an Armenian, it pains me that for a community of, a small community, a very small community of some 15,000 plus uh, Armenians living in the UK, largely in Manchester and London, since the late 1800s till today, that we haven't managed to get one single Armenian woman or man as an MP for us, either in London, in any of the boroughs in London or in Manchester. Surely, like other ethnic communities across the whole UK, we can also manage to do that. So here we go. Intuitive reactions indeed. Very intuitive, so I'm sure you'll find gaping holes in the logic of some of what I said. Forgive me for that, but these are my thoughts at the moment. And as I wish every one of you a Happy New Year, and some of you a Merry Christmas too, I wish us all good luck 
in the weeks, months, and years ahead.